You're listening to Hashtag No Filter with Zach Peter. That's me, your naturally platinum blonde pop culture connoisseur. I'm the reality TV junkie, self-improvement addict, and host with only the hottest tea spilled fresh weekly. For more hot takes, go and give me a follow at Just Plain Zach. I always keep it funny and I always keep it cute. And if you're like me and you want to stay up to date with the latest reality tea, just go and give us a follow at No Filter with Zach on the Instagram. You can always join our private Facebook group. The link is in the description below. Boy, oh boy, do we have a lot to break down today. But first, inspired by all of the wild events that have happened over the um, over the weekend, I have a fresh can of Drag Me from my new rosé line with Elix. I partnered with my pals at Elix to bring you a Housewives Watching Wine. It is a limited edition rosé. 14% alcohol by volume, but less than a gram of sugar. Drink responsibly, but I assure you, you will probably be getting Liddy City, which is why you definitely should be drinking responsibly. But thank you guys for supporting the wine brand. Thank you for supporting the original OG4 cans. And now we have the new Drag Me cans that are here for a limited edition. So be sure to stock up on them. As the new season of Potomac continues to unfold, we also have cans inspired by Atlanta, Beverly Hills, New York, and New Jersey. So you're going to want to go and check those out at nofilterwine.com. Go to nofilterwine.com. All right, so you all love to uh, you all love to remind me that no matter how much I may resemble Al Woods, I am no legal expert, which is why I love bringing them on to spit some facts on this show. Today's guest is a certified bankruptcy law specialist and a member of the Chapter Seven Bankruptcy Panel of Trustees, appointed by the Office of the United States Trustee, serving the LA Division of the Central District of California. Here to school us today on the Girardi bankruptcy, please welcome Mr. Dave. David M. Goodrich. Thank you, Zach. Thank you so much for having me today. How are you doing, David? Are you salivating over this Girardi case as much as we are? Um, I think because it is in the news quite a bit, it is interesting to follow along with what's going on. It um, for me, it's it, it's fascinating to follow because what I do um, as a bankruptcy lawyer and as a trustee. Most people don't understand it and you don't see it in the news very often. So it's kind of fun when one of my fellow colleagues is in the news and has a case that um, hits uh, a lot of the legal publications and then the local periodicals on like a, a basically a weekly basis. Yeah. So to, to just before we dive into the conversation and answer a lot of these big legal questions, can you first explain to us what Chapter 7 bankruptcy is? is and how one even gets to the point of filing for bankruptcy? Sure. So chapter seven ordinarily is a voluntary um, bankruptcy chapter that you can file if you seek the protection of the court. The goal of a chapter seven bankruptcy is to get a discharge of debt. Um, nearly all debt is dischargeable, excluding a certain couple types of debt. For example, certain tax debt, um, child support and alimony, um, debts uh, that are non-dischargeable if a complaint is filed, uh, for example, um, the commission of fraud, or perhaps uh, the incurring of a financial obligation uh, under false pretenses, including the use of false um, financial statements. Uh, also fraud in the fiduciary capacity, for example, a real estate agent, or an escrow company that may have stolen money or misappropriated funds. Those types of jet debts can be non-dischargeable. However, those require a complaint be filed. Um, so the goal in a chapter seven is to get a discharge of debt um, at the end of the case, which is usually four months, the bankruptcy court will enter a discharge of debt, which is a form of an injunction. The injunction prohibits creditors from um, trying to pursue their, their, well, either a judgment or a debt against the person who filed bankruptcy. Um, in exchange in Chapter 7 for a discharge, frequently assets are made available to be liquidated. And that's what trustees do. Um, I'm a court trustee, uh, and, and there are, I believe, 40-something trustees in LA, Orange County, and Riverside. And our task is to find assets that can be sold. Sometimes assets are transferred away 
and those transfers, if not supported by adequate value, or if they were made within a certain period of time, can be recovered. And frequently, those assets are um, like real estate or personal property, and then those items are sold. Uh, and so, people file bankruptcy for the benefit of getting a discharge, so that they no longer have any liability on most debts, um, and periodically we'll be giving up an asset to get to that spot. The, the one issue that it, it varies by state is whether or not there are exemptions that protect assets. In California, there are generous exemption provisions that allow people who file bankruptcy to keep certain assets. Homes are primarily the, the asset that a lot of people who file bankruptcy can protect. It's, there's something called the homestead exemption. And there are also personal property exemptions that apply. There are exemptions against income and so forth. So the, it, it's, it is part of filing a case is that to get a discharge, you do have to make available your assets. But in California, I'd say about 98% of all cases are what are called no asset cases, meaning nothing is sold by a court trustee the case processes in about four to five months. It this the debtor receives a discharge and the case closes. Okay. So then is it possible that Tom Girardi filed for bankruptcy to avoid having to pay back a lot of these lawsuits against him? We see former clients suing him for unpaid settlements. We see former business partners now uh, suing him, but we are seeing all of his assets being liquidated. We have his home that's up for sale. We have Girardi cases, everything down to their ice chests and staplers that were put up for auction. Lingerie that they found in his office was put up for auction. Like they're getting rid of everything. So how did he end up this far into this mess? So he fits into um, the window. Uh, there aren't very many involuntary bankruptcies. So earlier I pointed out that uh, usually a bankruptcy case is started by the person seeking protection filing a petition for bankruptcy. What happened with Tom Girardi and his law firm is creditors uh, using the powers under 11 U.S.C. 303, filed what's called an involuntary petition, which forces him and his his law firm were both fo forced into bankruptcy. Um, they have to do uh, they have to prove that um, a, a couple of things: whether he's insolvent or his company was insolvent, um, it's unable to pay its debts, and that they have enough in claims in the aggregate. There's a test. It's either three claims with a total amount exceeding 16750 or there's only 12 total debts and one creditor with a debt of 16750 or more exists. Uh, in both cases, they were the creditor bodies were both able to prove that an involuntary petition was justified and they uh, provided enough evidence for the court to essentially put Tom Girardi and Girardi Keys into their own bankruptcy cases in chapter seven. So it wasn't like he saw all of these debts rising. And so he went to file for bankruptcy. He was forced into this and now everything is being, you know, dug apart and liquidated. Correct. It's very unusual. Uh, it, it, and the reason it's unusual is it ha you have to have a variety of things exist in order for it to work. As I mentioned, the creditors need to be a certain amount and you also, um, if you're wrong and the case is dismissed, the party seeking to put an individual or corporation into bankruptcy uh, could end up paying attorney's fees to the party or uh, the entity or individual who filed bankruptcy. Uh, and that can be thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's a very, it's a powerful tool, but it's also very dangerous if you are reckless or you do not have the sufficient information to prove uh, that an individual or entity is insolvent. Okay, we'll get into the reckless part in a bit because the players involved seem to be a little messy themselves. But can you first explain to me the role of a trustee in a case like this? In this case, it's Alyssa Miller. Who? So can you explain what she actually is doing and whether she's working on behalf of Tom or she's working on behalf of the state and what her involvement is? Okay. So there are two trustees in the Girardi case, case it's Elisa Miller, uh, and in Mr. Girardi's case, it's Jason Rund. 
They're both on the panel of trustees uh, in Los Angeles. It's the same panel that I've been appointed to. So Elisa's job and, and Jason's job is to collect all assets, whether uh, the assets are already in the possession of Mr. Girardi or his law firm, or if they are in the hands of another party, whether it's a debt that's owed to Mr. Girardi or Girardi Keese, or it's a, uh, an asset that was transferred away. Um, so let me give you an example. Mr. Girardi's home, it was in his possession when, he, when the case was filed. Uh, so Lisa does not, I'm sorry, Jason Run rather, doesn't need to do anything other than make sure the way is clear to, to sell the property. And, and the way that is done is to analyze what the secured debt is what any kind of claim of exemption there might be that exists and to determine if the property is sold and the secured debt is paid and the broker's costs are paid and, and escrow and title is paid and the exemption is paid, is there anything left over from the sale? If there is, then the property will be sold and the money will come into the bankruptcy trustee's account and be held pending further order of the court for distribution to creditors. Sometimes, however, um, if there's more than uh, more secure debt against the property than there's value in the property, property won't be sold. Uh, occasionally, creditors will go ahead and they will enter into an agreement to give something to the bankruptcy trustee, not personally, but something that the trustee would bring into the estate account that can be used later to pay unsecured creditors. Um, so I don't know if that's what Mr. Rund is doing. It appears there is enough equity in the property. The one issue is there's a judgment lien that was recorded um, and that that may affect whether or not they can sell the property or mr run can so for elisa it's a little different her job is to marshal the assets of the law firm and to do a couple of things one is to recover money that's owed to the law firm probably by customer or clients the other is to determine if assets were transferred away and if so was there is there any kind of defense to a recovery of those transfers. So there's two types of transfers um, that ordinarily are pursued by bankruptcy trustees. First is something called a preference. And usually that is a situation where it's a vendor and the party in bankruptcy and the vendor received a, a, a payment within 90 days of bankruptcy in exchange for goods. And those are usually protected. Sometimes, however, they're not protected depending on the transaction. A transaction that's not ordinary course, in other words, it's kind of out of the blue where this vendor, let's say, is owed for six months of deliveries. And uh, within the 90 days, the party in bankruptcy decides just to make one big payment. Sometimes those can be covered. The other type, which is more in line with what's going on in the Girardi Keys case, are transfers that are made. They used to call them fraudulent transfers. They now call them avoidable transfers because not all transfers that are, quote, fraudulent transfers are truly fraudulent. Um, transfers made, for example, a gift. If Mr. Girardi's law firm made a gift to, a, I don't know, maybe a charity or a client or um, his estranged wife, those sometimes are, are not intended to be fraudulent. They were just purely gifts. So the, the um, at least in California, they changed, actually, I think in the federal version too, the nomenclature in the statute went from fraudulent to avoidable. What avoidable transfers really are is that there's not enough value given in exchange for the transfer. Um, where that is coming up in these cases, I'm sure we'll get into it more later. Um, with Erica, um, her companies and Erica allegedly received, and these are not opinions, these are what are alleged facts they're not right. they haven't been proven yet right but she received money or her companies received money or gifts there was jewelry things like that and she provided nothing to uh, girardi keys in exchange so that's the kind of general basis for that lawsuit and and also to clarify because we hear the term transfers but these aren't like Tom and you know the whoever was running the books was making a bank transfer from a Girardi Keys bank account into the EJ Global bank account or Erica Jane's personal bank account. We're now seeing that these were Amex bills and expenses that she just passed off onto him, and we now see that he was using company funds that we now realize are stolen funds or funds that weren't um, 
given to or that clients are claiming weren't given to them. And so it was the Girardi Keese money that was paying for her personal expenses. And that's what we're referring to as transfers, correct? Right. The, the bankruptcy code, um, for purposes of avoidance actions, uses the term transfer. And it is more than just your typical transfer you would think of as a wire transfer or a fund transfer. Transfers can in, include any interest in property. And even an interest in property is a very broad uh, concept. An interest in property could be your legal interest or your equitable interest, um, arguably a future interest, although that has been recently shot down. But there, there are two issues that you bring up is what is a transfer and what is an interest in property? Um, for her and in the case, in the claims against Erica Girardi, it is a transfer of interest of property would have either been either cash or something acquired by Girardi Keys and then given to her. I think jewelry is one of the items that was in the complaint. Or what they've done is they've paid some of her personal expenses, allegedly, and that would also constitute transfer because that was money that was held in the accounts of Girardi Keys that then subsequently was used to pay an obligation of somebody that's not Girardi Keys, Erica Girardi. Uh, so that, that would constitute a transfer. Um, what, what is interesting with the Girardi Keys case um, is whose property was transferred. Right. So if you see the allegations, a lot of the money that was held by Girardi Keys appears to have been money that belonged to Girardi Keys clients and not Girardi Keys. So was Girardi Keys's assets transferred? That's going to be a super technical issue. And I imagine there, there'll be some expert testimony and there'll probably be expert reports regarding, you know, they have to do a forensic accounting. Whose money really was this? Right. So can you explain how the trustees Miller Fund, uh, Rund, sorry, Miller Rund and uh, uh, special counsel, now we're seeing Ronald Richards, he's in the news very often, he's very active on Twitter. Um, can you explain how they get paid through all of this? And what their, is it commission? Is it a fee that the state pays? Yeah, so bankruptcy trustees are federal um I don't want to say we're not, they're not agents. It, it is bankruptcy trustees are, um, were created under the bankruptcy code. So it's a federal institution. State of California has nothing to do with the bankruptcy system or bankruptcy trustees. So everything is derivative of the bankruptcy code. Um, and the U.S. Department of Justice it actually takes the role of appointing a trustee. Uh, sometimes they pick trustee for a specific case and they don't always need to be on the panel, but they also have a, um, a pool of trustees who are on a panel that are available for bankruptcy cases and are assigned cases um, roughly three, uh, every three and a half weeks, depending on what location. Um, to go back to your question, so trustees, the, the statute is 326, so it's USC 326, that prescribes the way and amount trustees are paid. Usually trustees are paid at the very end of the case and they're paid a commission based on distributions. Um, the commission structure starts as high as, I think it's roughly 5% when a small amount is distributed, but at some point around $25,000, it, it um, levels off at 3%. So for Elisa and Jason, for every distribution they make, they'll get about 3% of that as their commission. Um, but for Mr. Richards, he is employed specially um, under a true contingency fee basis. And his structure is it's 35% of anything that he recovers before a lawsuit is filed. If a lawsuit is filed, um, then it goes up to 40% and it will be 40% of any recovery uh, up until 60 days before trial. And then if he gets within 60 days of trial, anything after that, is 45% and it's the net. So if $100,000 is um, recovered and there's $10,000 in fees, he'll be paid the $10,000, I'm sorry, in cost, $10,000 in cost. And then the 90,000 that remains, he'll take whatever percentage in that scenario, either it's 
35, 40 or 45% is what he gets. And the rest goes back to the bankruptcy trustee to be held for other creditors. And so he's very boldly claiming that this is all funded out of pocket for him. So to clarify, he does get his expenses as long as they're approved by the judge. Those expenses do get paid reimbursed to him, correct? On top of his commission. Correct. The one thing, um, all contingency fee cases and also with a lot of bankruptcy trustee cases, lawyers who represent trustees are generally, they're advancing fees and they are carrying the receivable um, for months, if not years. Um, I, without having the numbers in front of me, it's at least a year. So if you take on a, a case as a trustee's lawyer, you may not be paid for a year. A so you have to fund payroll. Right. You have to fund all of your fixed costs as a firm, um, knowing that eventually you'll be paid. Right. Hopefully. If you don't Hopefully, recover yeah, anything, yeah, that's you true. don't get paid. Yeah. That's why it's very important that we, you know, focus on our job and, you know, go after the money. Um, so can you, can you explain how Tom is living right now? Because a lot of people are wondering if he claimed he only had sixteen or 18000 in the bank and he you know was out of pocket and had all these debts racked up, how is he able to live right now? Because I would imagine he's not living off of that. I believe it's sixteen or $18,000 that he claims that he only has left. That's a great question. It, it really... It's unclear what he's living off of. So ordinarily, after you file bankruptcy, your wages that come in are are not bankruptcy of the estate. Um, you live all, most people who file bankruptcy continue to receive their income at jobs, or maybe it's unemployment uh, benefits or, or whatever their income is. They they typically keep that money. Um, however, the source of his income, to my knowledge, which is Girardi Keys, is also in bankruptcy. And they, Girardi Keys and the trustee, Ms. Miller, uh, aren't going to be giving him payments, um, especially when he's not even providing services. Uh, at this point, it, it's my understanding that he is um, no longer permitted to practice law. So right. he, can't, he can't do anything that would generate income for Girardi Keys unless they brought him in as some kind of a consultant. For example, we'll pay you $10,000 if you help explain your books and records. Um, but, you know, as a as the owner of the business, he has that obligation already. Um, so you probably wouldn't see a situation where that is happening, but sometimes it does. The other way would be he could be using exempt assets. Uh, the funds in the bank account, there are significant funds. And I'm looking earlier to see if he's actually even claimed any of those funds as exempt. And I don't think he has, but ordinarily he would have up to about $30,000 of an exemption in bank accounts if he didn't claim a homestead exemption against his home. But I, I think he's going to probably claim the homestead exemption because it will be paid up to $600,000 before the judgment lien is paid. Right. Um, so that it's, you ask a great question. I don't know how he is funding his post-bankrupt um, expenses. I don't, I, maybe he's not, maybe he's borrowing money from friends. I really don't know. Yeah. Cause we know at least Erica is still working, but his source of income was his law firm, which is now in bankruptcy. So it doesn't appear that he has any sort of income. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a great question that we all want to know. So when the money comes in via liquidated assets or new client settlements or these EJ Global LLC transfers that, you know, Ronald Richards is going after, where does that money typically sit within the estate and what order of precedence is it used to start paying creditors? So ordinarily, the money will come into the bankruptcy trustee's account uh, frequently, well, well, occasionally rather we'll have multiple accounts depending on if the money needs to be earmarked ordinarily the money will come into one bank account it's opened up in the name of the trustee but as essentially the the trustee for the benefit of the creditors of that estate the money usually stays in the account until the final report of the trustee is filed so when the trustee um, is complete completed with liquidation. In other words, every asset has been either abandoned back to the company or individual in bankruptcy or sold or recovered, whatever it is, then the, the trustee will submit a final report 
um, that eventually gets to the bankruptcy court. And if the bankruptcy court approves that final report, then distributions are made. Distributions are made pursuant to um, it's uh, 726 of the bankruptcy code. And the order priority is, is it's support. Um, so child support and um, I'm sorry, let me go one step up. There's first administrative expenses. So whatever the cost of the, the estate, the trustees commission, legal fees, uh, fees for an accountant, fees for a financial advisor, bank fees, sometimes there are bank fees, anything else at that level gets paid first. Then the second priority is alimony, uh, child support, wages up to a certain amount, taxes, things like that are all priority debts. And then finally, general unsecured debts, which are just your ordinary garden variety, variety debts. The one issue, the one other item, which is not in the code, but which is by statute, well, it's not statute, it's by agreement usually, and it's also protected on Article 9 of um, the commercial code for California are secured debts. So if there is a lien, a mortgage, for example, against the property um, where he lives, his residence, when that's sold, that secured debt has to be paid before any unsecured debt's paid. So the trustees, commissions, and the real estate commission, and anything else can't be paid until that is paid, unless there's some kind of an agreement with the mortgage holder that it not be paid. But in my experience, that really never happens. The mortgage creditor is in first position unless their lien is subject to potential um, challenges. For example, they have a faulty deed of trust or they record it in the wrong location or the wrong asset description. 99% of the time the lien description or the liens are valid and they get paid um, usually straight out of escrow. Okay, and we're seeing now, according to uh, Miller's recent report, we're seeing that there's 49 million of secured debt that he owes. Right, it's all, it's alleged secured debt. And so there are different, obviously there are two different estates um, and there's the one with Girardi Keys and then the other with his own personal assets. Um, I'm not sure which one has that $50 million. If it's in Lisa's report and that's in her estate and some of that has to do with pre-judgment liens. Um, there's one, let me see if I have the name here. One of the um, creditors actually ended up with a judgment lien. And it, was, it was an interesting name. Was it the Rui Gomez family? Yeah, that's it. And, yeah, and they had a, it was a $12 million judgment, right? And he paid $1 million, so he still owes eleven. So from what I've seen looking at this, they're the only former client of, of Girardi Keese that was able to get their debt secured. All the other clients that are claiming they never got paid, their their debts aren't secured. So they fall into that bottom category. Right. Most of them will. But here's the one exception. This is what I was alluding to and I briefly discussed before. Whose money is it? So if you hired me, and I was your lawyer, and we settled a case, and the money um, that was the payment for the settlement came into my trust account. Trust accounts by operation of law, and these and trust accounts are heavily monitored, and there's significant consequences for violating your duties as a lawyer vis-a-vis uh, -vis your client. If the money comes into my trust account, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. Right. I might have a right to some of that money because we have an agreement and our agreement says that I get 40% or whatever it is. And I might have an attorney lien, which that's another issue, but setting aside a lot, if you don't have an attorney lien, if the money is sitting in my trust account, it's for you. It's not my money. Right. And so what, that's where it's getting really interesting is there's all the money that uh, purportedly came through the Girardi Keys account and then was paid elsewhere that sound based on the allegations should have been paid to the clients. Um, so is that money, money that ever belonged to Girardi Keys? The argument would be, yeah, the portion that was earned by Girardi Keys right. would belong to Girardi Keys. And even if it didn't, they probably have an attorney lien um, based upon their fee agreement, but the remainder 
never belonged to Girardi Keys. It should never have been taken by Girardi Keys. It belonged to the clients. So that actually sounds like that could help the clients because now we're looking at it as it's their money and it was never Girardi Keys money. So they can are essentially entitled to it. Right. The, the question I think, and I, I don't have a lot of, I don't have any actual knowledge of what's going on in the litigation and what's being discussed, but it seems to me if a complaint is filed by, by Lisa in the Girardi Keys case against a defendant who received money. So Erica Girardi would be a good example. Where it gets interesting is whose money was transferred? Was it money that belonged to Girardi Keys? And if so, um, if there's no defense to the transfer, in other words, it was a, uh, an avoidable transfer, that there's no defense to the receipt. In other words, it wasn't in exchange for other assets or for you know, services rendered, things like that, probably recoverable. If it was money that belonged to a client and that was transferred to Erica Girardi, can that be recovered by the trustee? I don't know. I don't think it's property of Girardi Keys. I think it's property of whichever client had a vested interest in the money. So the, I think it's the Gio Gomez or whatever Rui your Gomez, name is. Yeah. yeah, I would think, and they're the one exception because they also have a secured right. right. But setting aside the secured right, it's it could be an argument that they would make is that the trustee shouldn't even be pursuing our money because it belonged to us. So that is our lawsuit. We will we will sue separately, and that might happen. Um, I've only seen the bankruptcy docket, um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see some of these the lawyers that represent these former clients of Girardi Keys suing directly, avoiding the bankruptcy court. Um, the danger of doing that is without court permission, you may be in violation of the bankruptcy stay, which protects the assets of a bankruptcy estate. So, as I mentioned earlier, you get a discharge in Chapter 7 for individuals. And they make that note. Corporations do not receive discharges in Chapter 7. They're just liquidated. And then when the case is over, they're still liable for any debts that remain. In this situation, the Girardi Keys Corporation, or, or I don't know if it's a corporation, but Girardi Keys, if it's wound up and the case is over, it still will owe money. Um, so it's important to remember that, that the, the obligations will still be there when the cases are over. But setting that aside, it, it, you know, the, getting back to what I was saying is that it, it's interesting to see how it, parties proceed in connection with assets that may have never been property of Girardi Keys. Right. That's an interest. I've, I've never heard it from that angle before. And I think that actually, for me as somebody following the case, that gives me a little more hope that a lot of these clients could possibly end up getting there. Because when you're looking at the bankruptcy and you know how things are playing out there, it's looking like a lot of the lenders are, because they have their secured debts, they're going to be the ones first in line to get their money. But as you said, it's not Girardi Keys money, so it shouldn't be their money. It's It's client money. And they're the ones that are entitled to that, which is, you know, the law doesn't always work in the side of morality, though. The law works in the side of the law. Um, so in the report we, uh, from uh, Elisa Miller, we see that there are several bank accounts listed and we see all of the assets listed. Now, I noticed that there was um, a section for real property and a section for personal property. Can you explain what those differences are? Right. So the, the real property is, is you would think it is it real property is residential commercial property that is real estate um so mr girardi's house is real property um there was a commercial building involved real property everything else is personal property so bank accounts uh cars household furniture just you can go down the list everything else that's not real property is personal property also included in personal property are claims. So if Mr. Girardi had a claim against Mrs. Girardi, that would be an asset that is personal property. Mm. Uh, so it, it is a very broad personal property tends to include just about anything that's not real property. And it, personal property, you have two types of ownership rights. You have legal and equitable. So it, it could even be something that is just a claim that hasn't even been filed yet. It could be um, 
a future claim sometimes depends on when the claim arose. So if Mr. Girardi, let's say, were hurt last year, but he didn't show signs of injury until next year, that could be also an asset that's personal property. Okay. And so we also see that he had a lot of, or there were a lot of bank accounts listed in the report. I mean, there were a lot of bank accounts. Some of them had figures in them. Some of them had unknown figures in them. What would be, like, why would there be so many bank accounts listed? Were some of them trust accounts? Were they all his personal bank accounts? If so, why would he have so many accounts? Can you just explain that breakdown? Right. So this was, these are both involuntary cases, both um, Mr. Girardi and the Girardi Keys cases. And that means that the trustee who was appointed in each case uh, is responsible for preparing the schedules of assets. So each have clearly done a great job gathering information. Um, and it's not, I've been a trustee in involuntary cases before. It's really difficult to get information from an entity or individual who's been forced into bankruptcy. Uh, so you have to, as trustee, you have to gather the information and put the schedules together and file them. Uh, and that's what, apparently what they've both done. It looks like they've taken everything they've gotten their hands on and probably consulted with their own lawyers and with their own financial people and did the best they could to list all of the assets in each of the cases. If Mr. Girardi filed his own case, very good chance that those schedules would have been more complete because he has the history of the assets. He would know what, what he owned on the date of the filing. He would know things that the trustees just won't know. And that's, and that's just the way it is. And, you know, it's, They'll, they'll use their discovery devices that, that meeting of creditors, where is the trustee conducts a meeting and the creditors and Mr. Girardi will show up and can ask questions there. And hopefully Mr. Girardi or his representative is able to tell the trustee um, the additional information that he or she will need for each of the bankruptcy cases schedules. Now, I did hear that one of the benefits of him having so many bank accounts could have been um, that it's possibly standard that people that make a lot of money have multiple bank accounts because I know the FDIC limit is $250,000. So is it possible that all of these bank accounts were to fund, you know, to protect the multi-million dollar settlements that he was bringing in each year? Uh, well, Zach, you probably understand that better than I would. I, I don't know why he had so many bank accounts. That would make sense just to spread your risk amongst different banks so that if there is a bank fallout, we, we experienced it many years ago when the banks were purportedly too big to fail and then they ended up failing. There was insurance and that would be a smart play by Mr. Girardi to, to keep his money spread amongst accounts. There could be other reasons. I, I, I can't really speculate on what those reasons would be, um, but it's not unusual in a bankruptcy case, even the little small cases where um, the individuals have maybe $5,000 to have four accounts. Uh, you know, one may be a savings account. One's maybe a checking account that they had 20 years ago. And they just never closed. And there's a new account. So there could be a variety of things going on. Why he, why the, these accounts all exist. And, and you know, I don't really know exactly what happened and why those accounts are still open. And he has so many of them, but I think you probably have, that might be right, but just to protect that money from loss in the event a bank closes. Is there a potential tax benefit of having so many bank accounts open? I really don't like tax and I don't <laughs> understand it. I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. Ordinary income, whether it's income, um, well, income from wages or income from um, passive sources, in other words, stocks and equity, things like that. It's all reportable. So having the money in a variety of accounts, I don't think would save you any money. But again, I don't, I don't really understand tax law and I don't give any advice about it because usually my advice would be wrong. <laughs> so we did see that there were a lot of um, unknowns in the report as well. Unknowns in terms of figures in the bank accounts, just unknown I saw that word a lot. Like that was probably the most used word in the more than Girardi was the word unknown in that report. Is that standard for somebody to file a report during the bankruptcy and have so many unknown figures listed? 
Yeah, that goes back to the, the, um, the unusual nature of the filings. They were both involuntary petitions and the trustees just not having all the information they need to complete the schedules. That Those are what I believe to be the reason that they have unknowns is they just don't have that information yet. Is it possible that the information is just not recoverable? And how does that affect the case? Because we see Tom and Tom has, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia now, very suddenly. Um, a lot of the other lawyers and partners are pleading the fifth in a lot of this. So nobody's really trying to support this investigation into the finances. What happens if those figures are or remain unknown? Yeah. So with the, the law firm, that most likely Mr. Girardi has an accountant or financial advisor who, even though they may plead the fifth, should be should be required to turn over the records. So um, most businesses run software programs like QuickBooks or Peachtree. And those records, unless they have been destroyed, which if that has happened, that's another separate non-bankruptcy issue. Um, but if those records still exist, they should be available and could be turned over to the trustee. And then from those records, they might be able to piece together a lot of the unknown categories and, and amend the schedules to list assets or whatever it is that's missing. Okay, so let's talk about Erica Girardi, a.k.a. Erica Jane now. Because she's being accused of taking or using twenty five up to twenty five million in Girardi Keys funds, they're trying to get her to pay that back. Is it possible that she's going to have to pay that full twenty five million back? Because I do know that in California there is a four year statute of limitations on personal debts, and being that this twenty five million was accumulated over the course of twelve years. Is she going to have to pay it all back or does she have, you know, a loophole that she can possibly jump through? So the statute you're referring to is uh, it's a statute of limitation on written contracts in California, a written contract, a collection on a breach of that contract by the other party. You have four years from the date of breach. So in other words, let's say a credit card. If you have a credit card agreement and you fail to make a payment in January of this year, the credit card company could declare your breach um, as early as, and usually it's with credit cards, it's when the last payment was made. So in 2025, February 2025-ish would be when it would be no longer collectible because it's a, there's usually a written agreement with credit card companies. And so that would be the four-year statute of limitations on a collection action for breach contract. What we're looking at here though with um, Erica is transfers that she received. Uh, and there are a couple of statutes of limitation in California, I'm sorry, under the bankruptcy code, collection or, or actions to recover transfers made, you have two years from the date of the bankruptcy filing. Um, and so there, there's plenty of time for those. It will be, if they're filed, there's two-year statute limitations. But then there's also California law. So the bankruptcy code has this mechanism under 544B that says if you could pursue an action under state law as a creditor, essentially, the bankruptcy trustee can avail him or herself of those laws and proceed to, to recover assets or do whatever other actions necessary. Here in California, there are the, the uh, remember I called the fraudulent transfer laws are right. now avoidable transfer laws. The statute is much larger than bankruptcy law. It's four years. So they they have they could reach back. Oh, let me let me make it okay. Let me I I mixed them up a bit though, not on purpose. There's two years to file a lawsuit. The reach back is also two years under bankruptcy law which is any transfer made two years prior to the bankruptcy filing under bankruptcy law is recoverable. Under California law, it's four years looking back from the bankruptcy filing date. It also can be extended up to seven years if there's a discovery issue. In other words, it could not have been discovered that the transfer was made, then you could argue that you have a seven year reach back window. So if Erica received property from Girardi Keys or from Mr. Girardi 
in the last seven years and it was hidden from creditors, a lawsuit could be filed to recover those transfers. So there's a big window there. Usually it's hard to show that it couldn't have been discovered. Real estate's a simple example. Real estate generally, the, the title in the registers, registrar's office in LA, for example, you, you'll see the transfer. So it's hard to say, well, I couldn't have discovered that. But money's different. Money sometimes is not as easy for a creditor to, to be able to discover. So she could be looking at a very, and I haven't, I, I haven't gone through how far back they were looking in the complaint, but it could be four years of asset transfers that they're trying to recover. But they can't go back. But is it possible for them to go back the full 12 years? Because I think it was 2008 when they first started to see that. And it wasn't even, um, I believe he was writing them off as loans to her LLC. So he was paying for the expenses. And then on the tax filings, he was saying that it was a loan that Girardi Keys gave to EJ Global LLC. 12 years is unlikely. Um, Possibly 10. 10 years would only come into play if there was a tax owed to the federal government during that period and that tax has not been paid or debt rather. So usually it's IRS debt, 99% of the time, or there could be other debts owed to the government. If the government is owed money, um, there is a provision in the, it's called the Federal Debt Collection Practices Act that allows the US government to go back 10 years if it needs to. Um, let me take that back. It's six years. Sorry. It's six years for the US government um, that it could go back. And then there might be an extension beyond that. I, I think there's a discovery rule. But anyway, there, there's a larger period of time that they may be able to go back. And then there's another whole area of law that's still a little murky where transfers made um, the other party are held essentially in trust. In other words, let's say Mr. Girardi transferred something to Erica and Erica was holding on to that property with the understanding that it would be returned to him once his debt issues were resolved. That's also a possibility and you could go much further back in that situation. It's unlikely though that that, that scenario exists. I'm just assuming, um, but I don't know. I, I don't know. That, those are very hard to prove those kinds of cases. Is it possible that she herself could file for bankruptcy to avoid having to pay for this debt? She definitely could file bankruptcy. Uh, depends on what her goal is. I don't know what her assets are currently. So that would be the first issues. Does she have assets that could be liquidated to pay claims? And is she willing to, to avail herself of the benefits of bankruptcy uh, by sacrificing assets? Um, so if there's something that she owns of value, maybe the stock interest in these corporations that she owns, those could be sold or it could be transferred by the trustee in a sale. And then that, the amount recovered from that would be paid to her creditors. Um, whether or not she gets a discharge of all debt would be another issue. She could face non-dischargeability actions from some or all of the creditors, including both trustees could file um, complaints to have the discharge of the debt owed to the estates determined to be non-dischargeable. Typical grounds are fraud, um, conversion of assets. So conversion is a nice way of saying embezzlement or theft. You know, so an asset was taken that should not have been taken. In other words, there was no consideration or perhaps it was taken without even knowledge. Um, there's also what I briefly talked about the false financial statements, very unlikely here that there are false financial statements um, that were provided to Girardi East, but maybe, I, I don't know. Um, also defalcation in a fiduciary capacity. I don't know if the wife of a principal in a law firm would have fiduciary duty to its clients, but that could be something that could be raised as a possible claim against um, Erica Girardi if she filed bankruptcy. And then there's always the, the worst of, of all scenarios in chapter seven is a complaint to deny discharge. Um, and that that's also a possibility. So she could go into bankruptcy and I don't know whether or not she would discharge everything that she owes. Um, maybe some of it, maybe none of it, maybe all of it. It's, it's hard to say how aggressive 
some of these creditors would be. Uh, and the other piece is that you always have to figure when you're going after a party for a judgment, usually to collect money, would you ever be able to collect money? You know, is there any point in getting a judgment if someone like Erica Girardi may not have any assets in the future? But I think she does. She, she, she's on a television show. She probably has residual rights, uh, royalty rights. And so there's value there. So it, these creditors, if she filed personal bankruptcy, including the two trustees, could be very aggressive. And they may ask that their debts be determined to be non-dischargeable. So it's likely she's not getting out of this mess anytime soon. She, you know, they're going to pursue, I would imagine they would pursue this as long as they can. Yeah, good question. I don't know. There is something that all trustees are required to do, which is to do a liquidation as quickly as possible. So protracted litigation is not exactly, it doesn't fulfill the duty. If you're in a lawsuit for 10 years, you really, you're not breaching your duty, but you're not expediting and liquidating efficiently assets. So it's very likely over the next year or two that there will be mediations and settlement discussions with Erica um, and her lawyers that result in settlements with these bankruptcy trustees. Um, But I don't know. I don't know if she has so much in assets that she'd be willing to pay a big chunk of money or just want to fight it to the death. Um, And then don't forget, like I said before, it may not be over when these cases are over. There could be the other piece, which might be these clients of Girardi Keys going after her directly. Yeah. And her companies as well. So is it, is her divorcing Tom, because we saw that she filed for divorce last fall, is her divorcing Tom then also relinquishing the assets, like the property that they own together? Or is she still, like, how is she still involved being that she's filed for divorce, but they're not legally divorced and her name was on some of those properties? So it depends on what happens in the divorce proceeding. If the Girardis go to trial and a family law judge is required to enter judgment, dividing up their marital estate, giving whatever to Mr. Girardi and whatever to Mrs. Girardi, that's one thing. Um, It would be interesting to see. The first step would be proceeding in that manner because right now Mr. Girardi's assets are, are frozen in bankruptcy court. The bankruptcy state would prevent the state family law judge from doing something like that. Um, but if the bankruptcy court gave relief from that stay for purposes of uh, dividing up the marital estate in state family law court, then that could happen. And then if a judgment's entered, then the bankruptcy trustee in Mr. Girardi's case uh, would have to abide by that judgment. So in other words, if Erica Girardi were awarded the home, um, then that home would no longer be part of the estate. Um, very unlikely that it ever that ever happens yeah. during the bankruptcy case. The other possibility is that um, Mr. Girardi and Mrs. Girardi enter into a mar- marital settlement agreement where Mr. Girardi transfers certain assets to her in exchange for other assets. Depending on how that's structured, it may or may not be an avoidable transfer. Um, although it would be a post-petition transfer, but still be a transfer of assets without the blessing of the bankruptcy court and the involvement of the, the bankruptcy trustee, that will probably never happen because Mr. Girardi doesn't have the authority to give away any of his assets at this point. He'd have to have the bankruptcy trustee involved. It, when the bankruptcy case was filed, think of it as if um, for Mr. Girardi, once the order for relief was entered, the bankruptcy trustee, Mr. Run, is now the kind of fictional owner of his assets. And so as a fictional owner, he has the sole and exclusive authority to dispose of assets. But he also has to ask the bankruptcy court for permission to do these things. He can't just start getting rid of assets. He has to go through a process. Same is true with Girardi Keys. If there was any asset in Girardi Keys that Mr. Girardi wanted to use in a marital settlement, it would have to go through Ms. Miller. And then the bankruptcy court would have to approve it on top of that. So the effect of the divorce for purposes of settling up on assets 
you probably won't see anything for years. It's very unlikely. Now, perhaps there are assets that Mr. Girardi will claim as exempt. He may be able to use those assets because exempt assets that have no equity beyond the value of the asset typically get abandoned by the court trustee at some point in the case. And once that's happened, uh, Mr. Girardi will be able to use those assets as he pleases. Um, but at this point, his major assets most likely will stay with the bankruptcy trustee and will be used to pay creditors. And it, it's looking like when it comes to Erica and her being sued by the uh, by Tom's personal estate, not the Girardi Keese estate. We know Girardi Keese is going after her for the $25 million, but the... Uh, it looks like the personal estate is also going after her and they want her to hand over any communal property that she may be in possession of. That, I would assume, would be like jewelry, very expensive clothes or shoes, furniture. She hasn't turned any of that over. Is it possible that that's the legal strategy to hold on to as many assets before we move into mediation where then she would likely have to fork over some of that stuff? Or does she really just think she's entitled to all of it because they're all gifts from Tom. Uh, so California is a community property state and community property law uh, is an interesting area of law. It's very complicated. Ownership rights essentially are determined um, pre-marriage, post-marriage. And then there's also could be an intervening premarital agreement, sometimes post-marital agreement. So those are all the different ingredients in um, it, an asset situation where you have husband and wife. Uh, assets acquired during marriage, unless there's an agreement to the contrary, are community assets, meaning they each own an interest in the asset. So the jewelry, he may have given it to her, but without an agreement and with that agreement, um, either a statement in writing signed by Mr. Girardi that it's a gift and that it is not, he's waiving any rights to the property. Most likely it's community property. So at least some portion of that asset still belongs to Mr. Girardi. Interesting. So is it is it possible that she's just holding on to it until, because she's likely going to have to forfeit something at some point. Is it possible that the reason she's holding on to all the assets is to wait for that mediation to happen in the future? That might be her strategy. Um, I, I don't know, you know, there's the old adage, you know, possession is nine tenths of the law. With personal property, I don't know that that necessarily is true, um, but it's her strategy. Okay, I, I really don't know why that would be the strategy, but other than it's probably personal to her, there's probably some level of emotion um, and some level of entitlement because it was given, you know, if, if your significant other gave you something, even if you were married, you probably feel that that was your asset that yeah. belongs to you. They gave it to you. Um, but the way the law works in California, it's not so clear on that issue. It's not necessarily correct. And now on the, the show on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, she's playing the narrative that she really didn't know anything, but, I just want to clarify that, and correct me if I'm wrong, even if she didn't know anything, whether she knew anything or not doesn't really matter. She's still technically on the line if they find her, you know, if they find that the money does link back to her. So the avoidable transfer section of the law, there, there is a, an intent aspect. There's two ways. One is that Mr. Girardi would be the one, his intent matters. So did he intend to transfer an asset from Girardi Keys or from his own personal asset pool um, to her uh, was essentially the goal of protecting the asset from the creditor. Um, then there's the other aspect where it's, it's called constructive fraud, um, where, you know, given a, a variety of factors, um, adding those factors up, is there indicia of fraud? Um, or was the transfer just for less than equivalent value, reasonably equivalent value? So there's, there's different tests. So she doesn't necessarily have to have intended to take an asset with the goal of depriving Girardi Keese or of his own personal 
um, creditors and, and then have, you know, she, if she didn't intend to take it to essentially, I don't want to say defraud, but to deprive those creditors of that asset, even if she didn't know that asset can be recovered. Right. It happens frequently. Wow. 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 Lots, lots to break down, David. Thank you so much for your time for breaking, for for taking the hour to, to break down a lot of these questions and explain bankruptcy to a lot of us, myself included. I'm learning a lot through all of this. I feel like I'm in law school learning as much as I have over these past, over this past year. So thank you for your time for coming on the show today. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Ooh, wow, 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 wow. That was a lot to break down. Thank you so much, David, for David Goodrich for chatting with me today. That I learned a lot. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to watch this episode like three more times to fully digest all of that information. I hope you do as well. And while you're there listening to this, I hope you leave me a nice five star review on iTunes if you're watching this on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button and that bell notification button. That way, all of the tea is always served to you fresh and you get a nice little notification when there's a new episode. Dropping on hashtag no filter with Zach Peter. That's me. You can give me a follow at Just Plain Zach. Follow the podcast at No Filter with Zach on the Instagram. Join our private Facebook group. The link is in the description below. We go live. We do book club on Instagram every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, 9.30 Eastern. And every Thursday, same time, 6.30 Pacific, 9.30 Eastern. We go live on the Instagram. Get my hashtag no filter one at nofilterone.com. Lots of fun designs that you can enjoy while you're watching Housewives this summer going into this fall. So cheers to cheers to a lot more content to come. I'll talk to you guys next week or tomorrow night on Instagram Live. All right, bye.